Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in every spiritual blessing, or even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If I have not met you and we have not met one another, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to turn your attention ever so quickly at the end of your aisles. We ran out of them last week, but we have the uh, New Formed Life journals the reason I'm bringing it up is on page six, there's actually a place for you to take notes on the sermon or to doodle other thoughts if you get bored. Either way, we want to empower you to be active during this moment rather than just passive, okay? So those are on the end of your aisle. And just as a reminder too, the form.life, it's an online resource that empowers us to be daily engaging the spiritual disciplines to know God. And this companion journal, it collaborates with that, empowering us to engage God's word on a daily basis in line with our series as we walk through the letter to the church in Ephesus, okay? So with that, just kind of empowering you for that, I want to just take a moment to pray, okay? Let's do that together. Every head bow, every eyes closed. And here's what I actually want you to do. I want you to first, I want to empower you very actively to be praying for yourself. Pray that God would soften your heart. He would open your eyes to see the truth, the wonder, and the beauty of his word this morning. Would you do that by the power of the Spirit? Now I want you to pray that same prayer for the person seated to your right, to your left, behind, and in front, those around you. Would you pray that we would have hearts, oh, because our hearts, <laughs> pretty ornery, that our hearts would be willing by the power of the Spirit to receive what God's Word has for us today.
And then lastly, pray for me. Um, that in wisdom and truth, with the stewardship I have to teach and preach God's word, that I would be faithful first to Jesus for the good of this church. <coughs> Dear God, thank you for these wonderful humans here. Um, thank you for the ways that you've brought us together. You've um, yeah, put us in a place that we're able to sit in chairs and to hear your word taught, to hear it read. What we long for. Every single person who's here in some way, shape, or form is longing to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that you would speak and that we would be able to hear you when you have spoken and as you are currently continuing to speak through what you've said. We trust you, God. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, before it was like everywhere on social media, before uh, the popular podcast, um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, before the onslaught, or at least the continual onslaught of very public failures of quote-unquote Christian respected leaders for horrendous sins and atrocities, um, before... So much of that. I, I was sitting in a coffee shop with someone who used to go to the downtown campus. This was a, years ago. And I remember sitting there and looking across the table, and this person said, you know, Gabe, I'm just, I'm in a season of deconstruction. I, I don't know what I believe. I don't know why I believe it. I don't know where my, my framework came from. And so I don't know what I'm going to do next. And I remember seeing the pain in this person's eyes. I remember feeling the weight of that conversation. I remember us continuing to have conversation out of that and figuring out what next steps might be. And this was before it was really popular, like it was everywhere. This word deconstruction, it's almost become a byword of a whole generation. But, but the difficulty with this word, some of you are like, some of you are like, finally. Other, I mean, th I'm just thinking the body postures and the dynamics. You don't think I can see you, you know? <laughs> it's the beauty of not really having a whole lot of notes. I mean, I thought it through, but, you know, I'm looking at you. We're in this together, okay? <clears throat> the big question is, what is deconstruction? Um, and the reality is it's actually been around for a long time. This is philosophical. It's artistic, uh, literary kind of critique structures that have been used in a lot of different ways. It's been around for a while, but it, it hasn't become as dominant as it is now currently. This is kind of this new major thread, um, specifically when it comes to faith. And, and, and listen, there's a lot of people who have written on this. There's a lot of people who have wrestled through this, a lot of people who are very nervous about this, and some of that's good, some of that's bad. Um, but here, I want to name one person who's been influential and helpful for me in kind of navigating the complexity of this conversation. He's a pastor by the name of John Mark Comer, and he's done some really great work. And so what I'm going to start off with, and trust me, this has extraordinary import when it comes to the letter to the church in Ephesus. We're going to get there. But this is kind of a framework that we're seeking to better understand as we walk through the, the church, or the, the letter written to the church in Ephesus. He, he's done some really great work synthesizing and helping bring clarity to the conversation, which I think is helpful as we step into this, okay? And, and where he starts, 
which I think is really good, and it's not going to be new for those of you who've been a part of the downtown campus for a minute, is that, this is an important word to say, is that there is actually a good kind of deconstruction. It's actually the kind that you see Jesus doing when he steps onto the religious makeup of the first century world. It's what you see the prophets doing when they are combating against other priests and other prophets. (laughs) There's different structures and frameworks that actually don't align with God. So there's a good frame of deconstruction, and then there's an unhealthy or a bad frame for deconstruction. This is where John Mark Homer is helpful. He says, this, this good part is the, is the kind of deconstruction where Jesus and others use scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church. But then there is another kind of deconstruction, and then he just names us. So this is me. So this isn't me talking about someone else. I am a Western millennial, okay? There is another kind of deconstruction, that of Western millennials. It's definitely couched in Western culture. It has generational impact. Who use the world to critique the scripture's authority over the church. So there's two different kinds. There's a good kind where you're, where you're going to the scriptures what God has spoken to actually critique the corruption of the world in the church. And then there's another kind, a bad kind of deconstruction where you're taking the world and you're using it as the lens to actually undercut the authority of scripture in the church. But here's the, the reality. In a broken world, deconstruction is normal, okay? Um, you, you frankly... Uh, can't go through uh, maturation as an adult without some level of deconstruction. But you can't live there. Otherwise, you find yourself so deconstructed that you're living in ruins. You see, the deconstruction isn't the goal of the maturation process. It is a phase, though, and it's the middle phase. Now, a lot of theorists will talk about three stages in this journey. So I'm setting up some framework for us as a reminder here. There are three stages. You first have construction, okay? That's stage one, and you're going to see them up there. Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Stage one is construction. That's when you're born into the world. You're given these building blocks for this mental frame. It's how you build your worldview by the structures and the inputs that surround you naturally. And in many of this, it's very healthy. We have to. When you're born, you are given those building blocks, and then you construct the worldview in which is handed down to you. And many of the, like I said, much of this is good. Now, but in this stage of construction, this is often what presents itself. You see everything exclusively as black and white. There is no gray. You're very self-righteous, or you think you know more than you do. So this is often called maybe in the psychological world, unconscious incompetence. (laughs) Oh, I got it all. I got all the facts. Um, But you have no real capacity to wrestle through difficult, true-tentious spaces. That's, That's stage one. Now, over a period of time, you realize not everything fits perfectly, or maybe you've been given some faulty framing, and you begin to see the problems with the template that you've inherited. And maybe it's skewed by certain idols that were from a previous generation or certain cultural leanings that have infected that particular viewpoint that actually aren't in line with Scripture. And discerning, okay, what's good and what's been corrupted by the world and actually doesn't align with God's Word. That's a, that's a healthy framework of deconstruction. But then you don't stop there. <laughs> you can't stop there. You have to go to reconstruction. This is where you rebuild now based on the wisdom of those who have come before you. Just as a reminder, there have been billions of people who have lived before us. Billions. 
who have walked and tread the well-worn path of Christ. And so we don't have to start from scratch when we go to rebuild. And we don't have to ruin our marriages. We don't have to screw up our kids. We don't have to make shipwreck of our friendships or engage in destructive habits. If we take on the humble posture of an apprentice, if we're studying and reading what God has revealed in his word, and then own what God's word has to say to us, even if it's costly. We come with what we like to talk about a lot here at Christ Community, this humble confidence. Confidence in God's word, but still a humility in the midst of that. You can have conviction and compassion in the midst of those who disagree with you. And so John Mark Comer, he does some good assessment, and and I'm going to continue on with some of his insights. He says, we live in a stage one and stage two kind of culture, a construction and deconstruction kind of culture. And this shows up, and I'm going to name some things here, in both conservative and progressive circles, okay? So in stage one conservatism, um, you find that there's no room for questions. There's no room for feelings. What do I do with these things? Shut them down. Um, And there's no room for doubts. There is no doubt. There is just belief. Doubt is an enemy. Um, Not only that, uh, we tend to, in stage one conservatism, ignore data points that don't fit nice and neat into our category. Ignore them, dismiss them, look past them. And then we forget, too, that when we come to the text, we still are interpreting. There's the beauty of God's word. There is objective truth. But simultaneously, we are coming with an interpretive lens, especially when it comes to secondary and tertiary issues or these second layer and third layer beliefs. We're coming with an interpretive framework. Now, stage one progressivism usually looks like a parroting of ideologies. It's unthinkingly embracing popular worldviews because they're all over the gram, okay? Not Billy, um, (laughs) but Insta, uh, Instagram, okay? Just to be clear. Some of you are like, we had no doubts about that. I don't know why you said that, Gabe. I don't either. (laughs) But the reality is, too, is just absorbing those worldviews because they are just the way our world is and operates, regardless of the fact that they're often full of many contradictions and lead to great destruction, but even though they feel good and accepted in the moment. And the moment you begin to detract from those, you're seen as a heretic and shamed or, frankly, unloving. And so what happens, because these are actually both, stage one progressivism and stage two, or stage one conservatism, because they're so rigorous and they have no room for any sort of wrestling, a lot of people find themselves in stage two. Because you can only be so zealous for so long, and then many people right now feel themselves stuck, more full of doubt, actually, than faith, more full of skepticism than they are full of hope. And then very few, John Mark Homer, I think he's wisely noted here, very few actually reach stage three, reconstruction. It's the kind of person who has the high capacity for deep biblical conviction, but also recognizes paradox and complexity in the world. And, you know, I'm going to say something that some people feel like pastors shouldn't say, but I do think it's important to say, is I want to apologize for pastors and churches because I think whether it be our own egos or, frankly, our own fears, it's terrifying for me when I see 
followers of Jesus really doubt core realities of the faith? Now I get afraid. I'm just going to name it because I love you. Uh, but we haven't practiced the right amount of patience and care in the midst of those conversations. We haven't cultivated enough spaces to have genuine questions and to wrestle together. And so I apologize for me and for other pastors in those spaces because the, the reality is, is this is way more complex than any of us care to admit. There's no one-size-fits-all kind of scenario. And I, and this is, I promise, one of the last times I'm going to bring him up, okay, but John Mark Comer, <laughs> he highlights, and I, once again, because this is helpful framing, sometimes we can assume we're all on the same page around this language, and then we find utterly, you know, different conclusions to the same questions, right? So let's start on the same page here. I think this is really important. That really, when it comes to deconstruction, it's the axis of three internal and three external factors. And I want to look at first three internal factors that are often, so there he is. So if you're curious what he looks like, (laughs) it's a pretty sharp dude. Um, So internal uh, deconstruction, you see first that there's a lack of fear of God, a lack of reverence for God. This is my life. I'm going to do what I want. So sometimes it could be a very much like, I'm going to make my own, you know what? It's going to fall on me. Well, the reality is there is a judgment coming. And so there is a lack of awareness that it isn't just your life. It's actually God's body, his world in which you live, and you will give an account. So there is a lack of that where it's like, you know what? I feel this way. Well, congratulations. You're not the one who's going to be in the judgment seat in the end. Or there's a wounded heart. And, and to be clear, this wounding can be, come from genuine church spaces who are very cold. You'd, met, you'd heard that this morning that aren't treating people well. Or it could be you are chasing after an idol and someone said, hey, that's going to destroy you. And that hurt you because you were so committed to that idol, but it still wounded you or still felt hard. And then there's digital inputs and low scripture. So we have a high amount of of digital inputs, like all this content coming our way, whether it be our news stations that are shaping our imaginations more than scripture, whether it be your Instagram feed or your TikTok flow or what have, what have you, like all of this content and very little time in scripture such that when scripture actually contradicts what we believe, it feels foreign because it has such a small space in our hearts and minds. Actually, a lot of studies are showing it's about 20 to 1. 20 in terms of external content that has nothing to do with the biblical worldview being informed by most people today, and then 1, the engagement of Scripture through those devices. Think about how that's forming you, setting you up to how you feel when you receive Scripture. So those are the internal realities. Let's look at a couple external factors to deconstruction. Look at him. Now he's moving. Um, so here we are. Uh, first, broken trust from spiritual leaders. People who have proclaimed one thing and their lives are hypocritically just so opposite. And, and listen, no one's perfect, but there is a higher responsibility when you are drastically in, in focused in on God's word to then go so blindly and abusively towards a different direction. That can be really traumatic to try to make sense of that if you're a follower of Jesus. Secondly, cheap grace and low discipleship. It's the idea that all I had to do is pray a prayer and I'm going to go live my life the way I want and Jesus has got me. No. Actually, Jesus wants all of you because he wants to bring life in every nook and cranny of you. And it's not just a moment. It's all of life, continued surrenders wrapped in grace. 
and then ascendant secular ideologies, these worldviews or perspectives that are out in our culture that are quasi-religions that actually demand your full allegiance. And you often will find yourself, do I commit to that? But it's contradicting scripture, but you know what? This looks better. Beware. So those are some factors, these, this axis of these three internal and these three external kind of spaces that really cultivate or lead us to this space of deconstruction. And now my goal and really the goal of every pastor is never to label someone and instantly dismiss folks. But the reason we bring this up here today is, and across campuses for that matter, is you may be here in a season of deconstruction. That may define your experience right now. You might be in that stage. Some of you here might be so like, oh man, I'll never be in that stage. But here's the deal. You have family, you have friends who may be in this stage. And what does it look like to show up thoughtfully, compassionately alongside of them as we explore the gospel together? Because we know we can't live there. And as G.K. Chesterton, the great journalist and former prime minister has said, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as with opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Okay? And here's the good news. We're not the first. And truly, around human maturation and growth and then ownership, not just what your parents believed, not just what so-and-so believes, but what you genuinely hold and convicted by that it actually has impact in your life. If we're going to go through this journey, the good news is we should see this across Christians throughout generations. <laughs> People kind of wrestling through and, and seeking to better understand what the gospel means. And the good news is we aren't the first Christians, the first generation. We may have different language for it, but we aren't the first. And someone that's really helpful and has been helpful for generations that God himself chose, that Jesus called and then bestowed a unique authority, not that every single one of us has, but uniquely to apostles, to the apostle Paul, to speak into this, wrote a brilliant letter to the church in Ephesus that has something brilliant to say as we go about this journey. This is why we've entitled this series, Reconstructing Faith. We understand that there's a lot of different stories, narratives, and places people might be, but that's where we want to go. We want to have a more firm, solid faith in the foundation of the gospel that actually breeds the life of God in every nook and cranny of our lives, right? Don't we want that? And so that's where we are. And so we're going to be in this little letter to the church in Ephesus. It's one of the most influential books in the whole of the New Testament. It was written to a group of people who are who are located more than likely in a place that's similar to modern Turkey today, okay? And it was meant to be circulated around to various churches, giving them a unified foundation. What's interesting is that the letter to the church in Ephesus is the least situational. So you don't see like, hey, so-and-so, deal with these things. Say so, hey, so-and-so, say hello to this person. Like, it's very much broader. It's meant to give us a foundation no matter your context. That's really important and helpful for us today. Now, and, and even though it was written to a particular people at a particular time, it was written for all God's people throughout all time. And God wants us to hear what he has to say through his apostle Paul today. It's a message as we heard read in verse 2 of grace and peace. Who doesn't want that? Shalom 
An unmerited favor coming from God through Jesus? Oh, give me some of that, folks. More and more. I wake up in the, in the middle of the night or in the morning like, give me more grace, give me more peace. Well, that's available to us. So where do we start when reconstructing faith? Where do we start when reconstructing faith? What's a solid foundation to begin to rebuild a shaky faith? Where, and, and listen, where you start has a massive impact on where you end. And so if you're not thinking about the end while you're starting or you're not thinking about how the start genuinely impacts your trajectory you may find yourself still in ruins in the end. So here's the deal. Turn with me to this letter to the church of Ephesians or Ephesus um, together. And we're going to begin in verse 3. So turn with me in your Bibles, your Bible apps. Um, we do have some Bibles on the back table. If you don't own a copy of Scripture for yourself, that is our gift to you. We love God's Word. It is really His design and His path for every part of our lives. And so if you don't have one, take that as a gift from us. Now, Something that's important to note when verses 3 through 14 that you wouldn't naturally pick up. So, so Paul wrote this letter or had someone transcribe it for him in Greek, and it's been translated into English. So we have a translation before us. Interestingly, verses 3 through 14 are one big Greek, Greek sentence. Can you imagine you're like grammar school teacher? <laughs> like, this is a run on. Where's the commas? You know, oh, man, I've got issues with that. I was never good. <laughs> I have no idea how you diagram that sucker with our structures. Um, but it's one large sentence. And actually, there's a whole lot here because this is also being used as the introductory frame. We're not going to be able to cover every nook and cranny because that's what the letter is going to do for us as we're walking our way through it. It's a particular structure. Now, Paul does do something really unique here. This is where it's helpful to know the original context as well. Because Paul, usually when he's writing letters, he stays within the normal construction of writing letters. He kind of copies the models that are already made available to him. When you write an email, you've been informed by how other people write emails, I think. Uh, sometimes I get an email, I have no idea what that meant. Uh, I don't know if that's, anyway. Um, but the Apostle Paul normally follows the accepted construction. What he does here, though, it's not found anywhere else outside of the New Testament. The way he goes to this particular starting point in verse 3 is utterly unique. He even, in many of his other letters, will even start with, thank God for what he's been doing in your life, but he doesn't do that here. Instead, what the Apostle Paul does here is he begins with God. He begins by praising God, this blessed be God. Whenever you bless God, it's like, how do you bless God? He's the one who has all the blessings. What you're doing is you're vocalizing back using the breath that he first gave you to declare his goodness and his greatness back to him for who he is and what he's already done. So he starts to just, like, it's almost like he's starting to write the letter and he just starts worshiping, you know? He's like, blessed be to God. That's his starting point. Begins with God. And verse 3, so when we come to this, this isn't a work of literature, right? So we want to read it well. This is kind of the topic sentence for the whole of this introductory uh, 3 through 14, okay? So let's read that together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, when going about 
reconstructing faith, where do we start? This is really, really important. We need to understand that we don't ultimately define the Christian life. God does. The Apostle Paul starts with God, who he is and what he has already done before you were even born. We don't define it. I don't get to come and say, this is what I think. The question, and this is why it's really important, the first question we need to ask when it comes to the Christian life is, what does God think? Because God is actually the one who created the whole world out of his overflowing love. He's the one who's writing a story of redemption. He's the one who's working and moving and holds all of creation in his hands. He's the one who's pursuing you. This is all about God. And that's where the Apostle Paul starts. You see, everyone who knew Jesus the best and walked with him, they didn't say, you know what, here are my thoughts about Jesus. They always talked. When you go across the gospel accounts, they call them revelation. This is really important. It's what was revealed. It's what God chose to show. This isn't my opinion. This is what God is showing you. And these particular men, these apostles, were instructed and empowered by God, by the Spirit in a unique way, to reveal what God believes and what he is doing in the world. And therefore, instructing us in truth as to who he is and what he's doing in the world. You see, we don't come... And the culture or our world or our subcultures don't have the power to define God. Now, sometimes God actually goes and critiques various perspectives that subcultures have about him. But at the end of the day, God is the one who is good, perfect, and rich in grace. And he's the one who is critiquing every culture, every generation throughout history. He's the one that it begins with. And so our goal is to let God define the Christian life because he has spoken. And because of who he is, if he's genuinely good, then he doesn't lie. And if he doesn't lie, then what he has said remains to be true. Even Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I don't know what you guys think. I've not come to just like get rid of all that and say it. I've come to fulfill it. It's not about saying that God said one thing in one generation and another thing in another. No, it continues to be revealed how it's richer and fuller than we can imagine. And that's why the apostle Paul starts in verse 1 by saying who he is. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. What? By the will of God. That's some strong language, friends. He knows who he is. He knows that God has him where he is and is called to say what he's about to say. And he starts by praising God and what God's doing, not how it fits our prefabricated lives and desires. But what exactly is the Apostle Paul praising God about? This is, because you look across the New Testament, I mean, you, you can't read the New Testament without understanding that God is doing something uniquely and essentially and exclusively through Jesus in the history of the world. Now, if you make Jesus not about Jesus and you dismantle his name and say, well, Jesus actually stands for something else. No, it stands for historical person. And Jesus is the one that God the Father is working through to unite all things in him as I kick over this stand. Man alive. You got it. See, that's community, friends. That's church. Some guy can't walk and another guy catches him. All right. But what, what about Paul here? There's a unique revelation that God has given to 
Paul. Where do we fit in this story? The Apostle Paul, he's affirming all that God is uniquely doing in Jesus. But where are we at in this story, in God's story, in his world, in our bodies that are actually his bodies? Paul has something that's outlandish and it's central to everything he's going to write in the rest of this letter. And really, you find it across the New Testament as well. And it's this, the whole Christian life is defined in Christ, in Christ. This is a story about God that we've been invited into. And the question is how? And it has everything to do with that, those last two little words, in Christ, in Christ. Now, as soon as you hear that, especially within our English kind of framework, we start to think like a jar, like a fly is in a jar. Is that what you mean? Like in Christ, like bing, 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 you know, like we're just bouncing around in Jesus. Not quite. Is it like being in community that maybe gets a little closer to what that's about? But that doesn't even capture the sum total of what this astounding two words are really capturing. In, in, in the, uh, one of the most popular and most well-respected Greek dictionaries, or lectionaries, uh, the BDAG, as it's called, which are actually um, these short little, uh, the, the, the letters of the names of the people who did all this translation work. This little word in, epsilon noon, um, has s- like one of the longest entries. It has a huge framework. It's like a giant suitcase with all of this rich- richness that you're in, that you're alongside, that you're with, that you're defined by, that you're in the sphere of where he is. You are with him. It's all of this richness and this beauty. And frankly, as you're probably listening to it read today, you're like, man, how do I make sense? Of it? And I'll be clear, there are some other translations other than the ESV that make it a little smoother. <laughs> we wrestled through this. The reason we still had the ESV read is because it does the best job highlighting the repetition of that in Christ, in him, in Christ, in the beloved. It just goes over. It keeps that. You're just like, man, Paul's using this phrase a whole lot. He's really banging a drum here about where we are. And we can't miss it because it's essential to what he's going to say across the rest of this chapter. Even in verse one, when he identifies who they are, they are the saints who are yes in Ephesus, but are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's that in Christ again. It's all over the place. Where they are, more than anywhere else, more real than sitting at your desk at work, more real than the person you're sitting next to right now, more real than the feelings you have and the wrestlings you're going through is the fact that you are in Christ. Paul is expanding our imaginations. When you have so many other inputs who are telling you this is the way the world is and this is how you fit in the world, Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're in Christ. He defines you. He has you. And you have him. And you are with him. Don't ever miss that. That's the first place. And the last place is in Christ. You ever see those maps like in the in the airport, and they're like, you are here. <laughs> How do I get to my terminal? Like, now. Um, or where's that nice pair of sneakers? Uh, like, all of that. It's like, this is where you are, and here's the landscape. The Apostle Paul is starting, and he's drawing a big red arrow, and he's saying, you are here. Do you want to know where you fit in God's story and what he's doing in the world? If you believe Jesus and you believe in him, you are in him. And all that God is doing in Jesus, he's now doing in you. This is, this is mind-blowing. 
It's explosive. I just want to read the passage again, verses 3 through 14, and I want you to hear the repetition of this, okay? So read along. If you can look along with me, if you've got the ESV, great. If you don't, you can follow along anyway. Okay, so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God's at work. He's doing, and he's been doing it before there was even a creation to be doing it with. God has been at work, and it's always been localized in Jesus, always. This is a large part of what Jesus, when he's walking with the apostles after his death, and he goes, look back in the scriptures, they're all talking about me. It's all going to Jesus. And here's the beauty, that when you believe in him, when you trust in him, then you are in him, and you are anchored in God's story. You have a place in the cosmology of the whole universe, and it's right there with God. That means we're invited into God. The love that the Father shows to the Son is the love he shows us. The gifts he's given to the Son are the gifts he's given us. The victory that Jesus won over death is a victory we too get to experience. And even now, the life he lived and continues to live, we see as the model for the life we are to live, if we are in Christ. We're in God. That's astounding. This is, mind, this is very foreign to the first century, that you would be invited into the community of God. Theologians, ancient theologians would call this perichoresis. Put that one in your journal, right? Perichoresis. It's the divine dance of God that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are dancing, united by love. And the Father is actually in the Spirit. And the Spirit is in the Father. And the Spirit is in the Son. And the Son is united to the Father, enveloped by the Spirit. There's this extraordinary three-in-one delight and dance that's happening. And then, because of the gospel, where are we? We're in Jesus. We're now in the dance. And I was at a wedding yesterday. I can cut some rug, okay? And... My kids were out there, and there's just something, and this is where my imagination goes. There's something about watching kids just dance their hearts out. Joy, fun, tripping over each other, clearly not coordinated yet because their bodies are still figuring it out, right? But just delight, and that's what it is to dance with God, to be invited in. We may not have it all figured out, but we're learning the moves, right? 
And we're keeping our eyes on the one that we are now a part of and saying, you show me the moves. If I start doing the electric slide and it's the chicken dance, show me, right? Oh, too real for some of you. All right. I get it. I get it. But what does this actually look like to now be included in the Godhead where the Apostle Paul just keeps hammering it home and him and him and Christ and the beloved? It looks like at least a few things. And I'm just going to read for us again verses 3 through 6. This is where we're going to start. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, grace or, or grace, which with he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, when you believe in Jesus and so find yourself in Christ, no matter what story the world tells you, we're blessed, friends. Like, we are blessed. That means your past is so much richer than you could have ever imagined. So many times, you know, you're sitting in a circle and like, tell me your story. Well, I was born in this is when we come to this story, the Apostle Paul is explaining, he's like, listen, God loved you and actually had a plan for you before you were even born, before creation was born. You want to talk about your story? It begins all the way before creation. That's an extraordinarily rich past anchored in the love of God. Now, some people, when you get to this language of chosen or predestined, I know that makes hairs stand up on the back and necks of some folks. And there are thoughtful conversations as to what that means, but where we find common ground, no matter where you are in the debate around that, is that God indeed does choose a people for himself. That is without question. Otherwise, the text means nothing. And he chooses us out of love, and he's the one who acts first. While we were yet sinners, the Apostle Paul said. That's when he died for us. He's acting first. He's always acting first. And he has a plan to make us whole and holy, the text says. Holy doesn't mean the same as the surrounding world. It means different than the cultural values. Sometimes it aligns, but a lot of times it's like, oh, our world celebrates this, but Jesus doesn't. Well, Jesus, you win. Make me holy because that's actually, that holiness is also where wholeness is. <laughs> and so he has a plan to do that in our lives as Christ defines us. So that's a part of our past, but our present is that he's actually given us every spiritual blessing in the, in the Holy Spirit. That's our present reality. And then our future, when you get down to verse 11, is that he's actually anchored an inheritance for us that's coming, that we can hope in, that no one can take away. That is an extraordinary story of blessing. You've got a past richer than you thought. You've got a present more powerful than you realized and a future that no one else can take away. You're blessed. And not just one day. Now, today. That's the story of God that we've been invited into. But continuing on, not only are we blessed, we see that no matter what others tell you, we are beloved. If you look at verse 6, where are we? We are in the beloved. <laughs> We're in him. Whatever God has directed, the Father has directed to God the Son, we're recipients of that. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, 
If you are believing and trusting in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and you're trusting him for your life going forward in Christ, his grace is sufficient and his love will cover you. You are actually called beloved. That's your name. And it's not just an emotion. To be clear, there is a unique kind of love God has directed towards those in Christ. Make no mistake, because it is a premeditated, intentional, action-oriented kind of love that will indeed impact the outcome of our eternity. That's the kind of God we have. And then you get to verses 7 through 9, and it's like, what baggage are you bringing? What pains? What sins? What mistakes? What destructive decisions have you made against yourself and others? All of that, bring that to me. I'm not going to say, it's okay. I'm going to say, that was awful, but I'm going to pay for it. That's what God says. I'm going to actually redeem you from it. Yes, that was atrocious. I'm not going to lie to your face and say, hey, yeah, go do that again. Please don't do that again, but you're okay. Don't do that again, but you're okay. No, 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 no. God says, that's awful. Don't keep doing it. I come with grace, and I'm going to cover that with the blood of my son. It's done. Cosmic justice has been satisfied, and now... You can be mine because of grace. You don't deserve it at all, but I'm going to give it because I love you that much. That's it. Nothing. So whatever you're wrestling through and you're just telling yourself, finally, I'll be good enough. Fine. No, he loves you enough now. And he wants a redeemed outgrowth of that love in your life now. And then number three, no matter how you feel, we all belong. You see here this beautiful cosmic plan that God has to unite all things in Buddha. In, no, okay? I, I'm going to be very frank here. This is not a place where all religions lead to the top of the mountain. Paul is clear. Jesus is clear. There is an exclusive path through Jesus because God's plan is uniquely in Jesus to unite all things to him. And that includes, and this is a big part of the broader narrative or the broader movement or the drama, I love the drama, the drama of Ephesians is that he's now including people that others thought could never be included, the Jews and the Gentiles. He has racial, ethnic, gender dynamics going on where he's saying, you're all included. The main common denominator is what you do with my son. If you embrace Jesus, I'm going to do something that no one else can do because the common ground is not your racial background or your gender where they're constantly at war with one another. No, I'm going to bring peace and unity and unite them all in my son. And he's doing all of that. He doesn't just write a me in there. Well, this is how I feel. He's writing a we, and he is over that we as the king as he thinks about all the people, even the people you may not want to include. And the Holy Spirit's within us. And listen, when you read that, that's not just something that's like this invisible force that's lying dormant that we can tap into and direct. No, 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 no. This is a person <laughs> who's alive in us and he's shaping our imaginations. 
and our desires and our framework to be more in line with Jesus or in the midst of temptations that may indeed be the story of our life until Jesus returns, giving us strength through community and through the power of the Holy Spirit to actually go on wrestling for him. That's what he's doing. And then you know where it all lands? It all lands with praise to his glory. You know, this thing starts with a blessing unto God, a praise to God. And then three times over, we see all the praise of his glory or to all the praise of his glorious grace or all the praise in verse 14. It ends with all the praise or to the praise of his glory. This is God's story. <laughs> and when you begin to see the beauty of it, the goodness, the truth and the beauty, what the things that we're all looking for now on display and we get to be a part of it, it becomes glorious or manifest or wonderful and you can't help but say, that is amazing. That's what God's doing. That's what he wants to do. He wants us to know we are blessed in Christ, that we are beloved in Christ and that we all belong in Christ when we embrace Jesus. And it leads us to gratitude, friends, versus entitlement. Gratitude means like, hey, it's natural for me to just be so grateful because I know I don't deserve this versus like, it's about time someone recognized. It's about time. No, 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 no. God said, I've got the time and I've got you and I'm gonna give you something you don't deserve. And we get blown away because we realize who we are and we realize who he is. Even if we are made in the image of God, we are still broken and he is utterly perfect and we have actually broken his law and sinned against him and yet he still loves us unconditionally and he's come towards us in his grace. And we go, Why? Thank you. More why than thank you. Well, that's the journey, isn't it? And the more grace we experience, the more we recognize his grace towards us. The more our words are not the only thing that say thank you, but our lives are in obedience to his word. And so the key question, in the midst of all of this being done in Jesus not just a metaphor, but a real, vibrant person. And even though Paul's shaping our imagination, he's actually revealing to us what is real, not giving us a really neat category to possibly think about life alongside of other This is what's real in Jesus, even though it feels foreign to us. The key question when it comes to our participation and we go about this journey of reconstructing faith is this. Are you being defined by Jesus or something else? If it's all about being in Christ... Being in him, with him, defined by him. Are you being defined by Jesus or something else? Or you're going back to God's word and you're saying, how does this line up? What I didn't ask is this, did I say, does this line up with your opinion? Opinions are important, but that's not the most important question. And listen, feelings are also really important. But what feelings do is they reveal what we value. They reveal what we value. They don't define whether what we value is good or bad. You may deeply be committed to an idol, and when that idol is snatched away, you feel sad and broken. Does that mean that idol was good for you? No. But it definitely means you valued it deeply. Feelings communicate how you've been shaped. It doesn't reveal whether you've been malformed or transformed. We do need to pay attention to them, but they don't act as the decider of what is good or for our good or for our bad. 
And I didn't ask whether you agree or not. <laughs> because that even in of itself is not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is, does Jesus define you or doesn't he? His ethics, his framework for life. And here's the deal. You go to the New Testament, Jesus raises the bar. His grace is richer than we thought, but his bar is higher than we thought too. And it's not just to say we're all sinners and we're all going to fail, so just do what you want. And the great No, Paul says, you know, should we sin that his grace should increase? Of course not, because it destroys you. No, 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 no. We embrace his framework because we know it's for our good, because we know he's that good. And he wouldn't say it and command it and guide us to it unless he really loved us and it was actually good for us, even if it feels like death in the moment. Are you being shaped by Jesus or some other script? following along the parts and pieces, knowing your lines that feel very foreign to who Jesus is and what he wants. Are you walking his path? Or are you waiting for him to join you on yours? Jesus, I'm here. I'm all yours if you just walk with me. And he's like, I love you too much to go down to that death with you. Walk with me. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. I mean, even just think about what we declared together in membership. We start first with who Christ is. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We are brothers and sisters, how? In his blood. <laughs> we have died together, we will rise together, and we will live together. It's this resurrection life we have in Christ. And if you start anywhere else other than in Christ, you're going to lose sight of the blessings you have in Jesus. You're going to lose sight of what it means to truly rest in being called beloved, and you'll never feel like you belong. Never. You'll constantly feel like you're on the outskirts, wondering why. You see, everything that God is doing is centered in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says, yes, yes, yes. And here's the beauty. You're in him if you believe. And so we're invited to be defined by him because we are indeed in him. So what do you say today, friends, on this reconstructing faith journey as we walk through this brilliant letter? <laughs> And the Apostle Paul, so uniquely given authority, empowered by the Spirit, recognized by the church throughout generations to speak truth regardless of the idols and the proclivities we have in this generation. May we be able to step out of even some of the distortions we have in our cultural moment and allow God's word to guide us into full humanity. The things you can't forgive yourself for, let God forgive you. The things you can't forgive others for, let God forgive them through you. Because you're in Christ. So if he's forgiven you, you have the power to forgive others. For the areas where you feel like these are more important than walking with Jesus right now, surrender them. Because if you're in Christ, how can you not? If he's defining you, allow him to reorder your loves. And if you're not sure how this looks, I'm just going to invite you to stay with us in the letter to the church in Ephesus. Stay with us because the Apostle Paul is actually going to tease this out. It has stuff to say about marriage. It has stuff to say about friendship. It has stuff to say about work. All different kinds of dynamics. It actually impacts your life in a real way. If you long for the life of Christ to show up in your life on Monday, I hope you join us. Okay, let's pray together. Oh boy. Dear God, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness towards us. Guide us in your peace. We need your grace, God. Thanks for loving us when we don't love ourselves. Thanks for loving us when it feels like no one else loves us. Thank you for loving us enough to point us to life, even when we cling to death. 
It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen, amen.